Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Before we kick off the show, if you're a fan of History Hack, please do what you can to support the show. We completely get that not everyone is able or willing to dig into their pockets. Times are hard, but by dropping a like, subscribing on Twitter and YouTube, and importantly, leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts, you can help the program grow and reach more people. If you're interested in becoming a supporter, go to patreon.com forward slash history hack, where you'll find perks from secret Facebook groups to early release material. If you just want to leave us a one-off tip, go to co-fee.com forward slash history hack. The links are in the description. And whatever form your kind support takes, know that we are massively grateful. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to History Hack. We've got a fantastic guest for you yet again on a subject I know absolutely nothing about. So because I know absolutely nothing about, I'm going to hand you over to Zach, who's going to do the introductions. Hello, Zach. Hi, Bernie, but you're kind of assuming that I know what I'm talking about as well, which I never is assume that. not really the case. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Bern, nicely done. Um, <laughs> hell of a way to start an episode. Git. <laughs> no, I love you, Bernie. Um, yeah, we're joined by a brilliant guest today, Dr. James Holloway, who has a PhD in archaeology from Cambridge University, no less. He's an expert in the early Middle Ages, but at the moment he's working with something very cool called the History and Games Lab, which is based at Edinburgh. He has a co-authored book out called A Viking in the Sun, but we're not talking about that today. We're talking about something called the Varangian Guard, and I'm going to have to trawl up a little kind of snippet of crusader knowledge to attempt to vaguely sound like I know what I'm talking about. James, welcome to History Hack. Great to see you. How are you? Uh, I'm great. Thanks for having me. Shall we start with the basics then? So the Varangian Guard, I mean, you've already right. had to correct me on my pronunciation off air. <laughs> well, now, so, I mean, what was it? So the, the I mean, I like, I don't want to be correcting people's pronunciation because of course this is not, uh, you know, it's not an English word in the first place, right? So we're all just approximating it. Um, but so the, the Varangian Guard is a... If you read like a a book that is not about it, but that's about kind of like the Viking world in general, people will tell you that the Varangian Guard is the Byzantine emperors or the the Eastern Roman emperors, right? The uh, no one says Byzantine, but you know what I mean. The Roman emperors, uh, the imperial bodyguard. 
Um, this is a bit romantic. I mean, it's true in a sense that the that the guard, you know, they do provide security for the emperor, and there are Varangians uh, guarding palaces and other government buildings. But they also they're out on campaign all over the empire and all over its um its uh, its borders. So it might be more accurate just to say that they're kind of a regiment of the sort of standing central part um, of the imperial army, uh, and they're made up. Uh, primarily of people who come from uh, from Scandinavia, um, so from from Sweden, uh, probably mainly from Sweden, but also from Norway, Denmark, uh, from Iceland, um, and also from sort of what are today Russia and Ukraine, so the Kiev and Rus, um, and uh, and and maybe from other parts of the world as well. We're not we're not a hundred percent sure. So let's um, get down to brass tacks here. What does Varangian yeah. actually mean? Well, uh, okay, that's a complex question. Uh, so, <laughs> I hate to, I hate to, I hate to say things like you know nobody really knows, but like, so the the Varangians are a term that people use to refer to, I guess, people from Northern Europe, and it's not always um, consistently used. So sometimes we see like the terms Varangian and and Rus or Rus being used interchangeably and then at other times there are like byzantine sources from the 11th century that say there were varangians and rose at this place so they're clearly thinking that they're two different things um so varangians may mean something like uh scandinavians but then um later on in the uh well she's writing in the 12th century but but about the 11th century um anna Comnena says uh, she, she calls the, she says the Varangians are men of the British race, um, and there are other references to Anglino Varangoi English Varangians because after the Norman Conquest, um, there are a lot of English recruits uh, in the Varangian Guard um, because uh, so it's it's it like all of these kind of definitions it doesn't seem to necessarily stay consistent over time either, um, and there's this other problem of course of um, uh, I think they call it atticism in uh, Byzantine history, where Byzantine historians tend to use like classical sounding terms for things to make themselves feel like they're part of the, you know, the Greek historical tradition, even when they're uh, completely like inaccurate to what they're talking about. So, for instance, Anna calls um, the the French, you know, people or or Normans or whatever on the First Crusade Celts because they're from Gaul, and so therefore they are Celts, and never you mind that quite a lot of time has passed. Um, so the term is used kind of imprecisely. If you look at medieval Russian uh, sources, I think it's the beginning of the Russian primary chronicle that says, um, you know, that, that these Varangians are called Rus, but there are other Varangians who are called Angles, Saxons, Normans, Goths, and Danes, for they are thus named, which is the least helpful explanation of a name because he just says they're called that because that's what they're called. Um, so yeah, it's this name that no one's 100% sure. It may come from a word that means something like um, people who made an agreement. So it may be something like um, federati, like in the Roman military. So it may mean allies. Uh, so we tend to use the word to mean what like colloquially you or I might call Vikings, people from Scandinavia or people from cultures that were in contact with those scandinavian cultures you know but uh but it changes over time and uh and everybody just says vikings as a kind of shorthand but um 
you know, I mean, uh, originally they probably were more. Uh, so they're, they they come down through uh, Rus. I don't know how much you know about the Kievan Rus, but um, it's a uh, it's a state in kind of what is today Ukraine and Russia um, that may or may not have a probably has a, a sort of Scandinavian element to it, like a, like a Swedish upper class. I mean, th- these are debated and, and unclear, but um, there's definitely some kind of connection there. Um, and in the 10th century, so well, starting in the late 9th century, you start to see large numbers of like Rus uh, mercenaries in the Byzantine military. And probably sometime in the late 10th century, maybe in like the 980s, um, it's often conventionally dated to a particular campaign during the, the reign of the Emperor Basil II. But I don't know that we're actually sure about that. I think that's just kind of you know, what we, what we tend to say, um, this participation turns into a, um, you know, a formal agreement that you'll get, uh, that, that the Byzantine emperor, that the Roman emperor will hire, uh, kind of soldiers of fortune from this part of the world, if they turn up, uh, willing to serve. Um, and, uh, so this, so we, we, the, the creation of like the guard as an institution, maybe the formalization of a relationship that had already existed, uh, for some time. Um, and the theory behind having them as the Imperial bodyguard. Well, so people will tell you again, that, um, it's a bit like, if you think about, um, you get this in, at some points in, um, you know, in the, the, in the Roman empire and the Western Roman empire, you get this idea of, of having outsiders as the Imperial bodyguard on the grounds that they don't have any kind of factional loyalty within the empire. That's the theory that, you know, they don't have any cousins who might like to be emperor. Um, I don't know if that's true. Byzantine writers are very given to describing the Varangians as intensely loyal to the emperor and not like ever willing to forsake their duty and they'll lay down their lives to protect him. But actually, like if you look at the history, there are Varangians on both sides of a number of Byzantine internal conflicts there are varangians involved in coups um you know uh, according to harald saga the varangians like at least one varangian helps to overthrow an emperor so i don't know you know this may be more kind of propaganda than uh you know these deathlessly loyal bodyguards may just be kind of a hype but it's pretty consistent with the way that the byzantines often um approach uh, those kinds of diplomatic relationships, like trying to turn enemies into assets. So the 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 first appearance of these Rus mercenaries actually comes following a conflict between the Rus and the Romans. And so uh, it may just be that they, you know, they, if these if what they're looking for is plunder, then uh, if the if the Romans hire them, then they can just turn them from a threat into an asset at the same cost. Um, and that's something that you see a lot that, you know, the, the, the Roman armies of this period are very diverse. They're full of, um, you know, not just troops from the different parts of the empire, but kind of from just wherever they could be found. So uh, I don't know if this is a, a quality unique to these, you know, loyal uh, Varangian guardsmen, or just that the empire has a lot of money and a lot of prestige. And uh, they, they, you know, they like to solve one problem with another. It's a very, uh, very characteristic part of their strategy. So let's talk about them and sort of not so much their makeup, but what they're actually doing. I'm getting the impression that this isn't sort of an entirely ceremonial role. These are people with an ability 
you're paying for them to do a, a task and so therefore you're going to use them. Uh, yeah, but very much I also, so. I also have kind of echoes of um, part of this admittedly might come from computer gaming. So please feel free to laugh at me hysterically if this is idiocy. But um, that these are kind of almost an elite style unit. These are a better element of the Byzantine army. Is that true or is that just pop I mean, culture? yeah, I, that's an interesting question. I, I think I'll, I'll split the difference and say that certainly contemporary authors tend to regard them as an elite unit, right? So, you know, uh, w- whether they were or not, and we have, you know, um, we have records of them, you know, winning battles and we have records of them losing battles just like anybody else, but they certainly people tend to think of them as in particular as being kind of elite among um, the, the infantry available. Um, you know, the, this is a, uh, the, the elite units within the, this army are, are kind of more typically cavalry, um, but the, uh, the military tradition of, um, you know, of Northern Europe at this point is sort of mainly on foot and well on foot and on and at sea right they're also used in kind of naval campaigns um but so yeah they're the the imperial like the quote-unquote imperial bodyguard is is just sort of more like the regiments that are directly available to the emperor um i mean the 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 varangians themselves we don't know precisely how many of them there were but uh estimates tend to be in the kind of i think one figure that gets quoted a lot is four thousand. so you know, they're a pretty substantial fighting force, especially when combined with the other regiments of the Imperial Guard. So the idea, I think, is that when you're putting together a force, you, you know, you'll recruit whatever troops you can and then kind of stiffen them a bit with whatever you can spare from the central uh, um, uh, military, almost like a reserve, because they're certainly on campaigns where the Emperor is not present. So like... Uh, um, one of the for, for Viking of the Sun, which is um, about uh, a particular period in the history of the Guard, um, when the future King of Norway, um, Harald Sigurdsson, was uh, was serving um, in the Varangian Guard in the 1030s and early 1040s, uh, the Varangians took part in the Byzantine invasion of Sicily, uh, which was not, you know, the the emperor was not there, uh, so you know they weren't guarding his person; they were just sent to go give this, um, you know, this force that was assembled. Uh, you know, some, some extra punch. And if, if we are to believe the uh, the sources um, that uh, that later generations of uh, um, of Scandinavians wrote about it, then they did a very they did very well, uh, much to the embarrassment of everybody else in the army. Um, and uh, if we are to believe the 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 Roman records, they were barely there at all because they're hardly mentioned. Um, this is one of the problems. Um, is that is that there's not, and we don't we don't know as much as we have to kind of infer a lot of stuff about how they were organized and 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 even who they were. There are, for instance, there are very few cases where um, Roman sources actually name a Varangian. Um, so w- one of the unusual things about Harald um, is that there is actually a a Roman source that says they call him Araltes, but it's clearly him. Um, there's a Roman source that says. He served in the guard and he was promoted. Um, and there are a few other cases, but it's it's also not always clear that their leaders are Varangians per se, right? So that they might, they might have um, Greek commanders. 
Uh, and so in some cases, those names might be the ones that are being recorded. So we don't actually know um, that much about their kind of composition, but we do know like where they're being deployed and they're being deployed all over the empire. So like um, just, just to, to go through my, uh, my quick list. Um, so we've got um, when they start like actually using the term Varangians rather than just saying they're, so they're Rus troops um, uh, in, um, in Syria in the 10th century, in Sicily, um, uh, in Italy, uh, in um, in uh, within the heart of the empire itself, fighting against the um, rebellion of Vardas Focas um, in Syria again, in Georgia, in Armenia, then in uh, the early 11th century, uh, in uh, fighting the Bulgarians, uh, fighting the revolt of uh, Melo of Bari in the early 11th century, um, and then the, you know throughout the whole. Um, early part of the 11th century they're everywhere they're in sicily again um they're fighting in georgia in the 1020s um in the, we start to see the, the description of the varangians in kind of like the second quarter of the 11th century um so they're fighting in egypt in the 1030s um in uh in italy um so in sicily as i mentioned in the late 1030s early 1040s in italy in the early 1040s um they're uh in our Armenia, uh, so like just in the 1040s, they're, they're fighting also in Armenia. Um, they turn up, uh, of course, they're in the Battle of Manzikert, um, where the, the emperor is captured from amongst like the, the ranks of the Varangian Guard by the Seljuk Turks. Um, they turn up in the fighting in uh, in what is today Albania in the 1080s. So they're all over the map. They're, you know, they're in every part of the empire. Um, and uh, and so you definitely get the sense that like, you know, wherever there's a serious uh, Byzantine, um, you know, military expedition, if they can spare some Varangians to, you know, uh, to, to add um, to the, uh, to, to the force, they will. There's also maybe a suggestion that like they, they often used to kind of garrison uh, places, you know, maybe reflecting their sort of um, maybe comparative lack of mobility. Uh, I don't know about that, but the, the idea that they were thought of as kind of defensive um, troops, that's certainly true at Dyrrhachium, where they get, uh, where the where the, the thing that um, Anna writes about is that they sort of withstood these enemy charges, right? They're not, they're, uh, uh, they're you know, they're, they're an infantry unit, so they're, they're seen as maybe not as, uh, as aggressive, but I could be wrong about that. Um, I don't know, the, 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 the writing about the heroism of the Varangians is often like about their kind of tenacity and determination, right? This, you know, standing and weathering charges kind of stuff. Um, but I mean, those are only a handful of examples. Like they just, they turn up in pretty much any conflict that the Byzantines are recorded as participating in. There's some Varangians in there. So they, they, they kind of get everywhere. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. So there isn't any kind of suggestion that these are shock troops so much as 
you know, you're going to put them in the front line to withstand an assault or you're going to use them as a reserve to, to hold off yeah, the enemy I mean, if everything we, else is going wrong. Is that the sense? We know so little about kind of... So when we get detailed descriptions of how the forces are deployed, like, so at Manzikert, for example, they seem to be guarding the emperor, right? It's mentioned that there are Varangians fighting around the emperor, um, you know, when he is captured. So maybe there, like when the emperor is actually on the field, they do serve as a bodyguard. So there, you know, you would see them in a primarily defensive role. But on the other hand, the campaign in Sicily is all, I mean, there are a couple of, there are a couple of field battles, but it's mainly kind of sieges. And um, the, the, the Scandinavian source, well, I say Scandinavian, the Icelandic source, um, uh, Harald Saga, which talks about, you know, what Harald got up to in Sicily. Um, uh, this is, of course, the same guy who gets, uh, who dies at the Battle of Stanford Bridge in 1066. Um, so he's sort of, he's uh, uh, perhaps best known to, to English speakers because of that, but he has this whole earlier career in the Mediterranean. Um, and that's all about them, you know, capturing uh, sort of fortified towns. Um, although it, it, the stories are quite fantastical. Um, so I don't know if you, either of you uh, or, or if any of the, the listeners watch the, um, uh, the TV show Vikings. Uh, but there's a, there's a story, there's, a, there's a, a bit in that show during the Siege of Paris where uh, Ragnar fakes his own death. Spoilers for a thing that happened in like the 10th century. Um, the, where Ragnar fakes his own death and is taken inside the town. Um, and then, you know, oops, he's not dead. He pops up out of his coffin and, you know, captures the place. And that story is in Harald's saga about how Harald took one of these towns in Sicily. It's that the, you know, that they pretend he's dead. And then the locals are like, oh, well, we must have the body of such a great man, you know, to attract like pilgrims to our monastery. At which point you start to think in Muslim Sicily. I'm not sure about that. And, uh, you know, like the claim of being St. Olaf's half-brother probably doesn't carry a lot of weight in Muslim Sicily in the 1040s, but never mind. Um, or the very late 1030s, I guess. Uh, but so, so a lot of these are kind of like fantastical or sort of stock adventure stories. Hard to know exactly uh, what they're being used as. But in, for instance, in the Alexiad, when they talk about the... Um, uh, the role of the Varangians at the Battle of Dyrrhachium. Once again, it's about how they're uh, um, kind of trying to stand off some charges, or and, and at times how they get lured out of formation by um, enemy cavalry. Um, and there's uh, ex- there's examples of them um, serving in kind of siege uh, defenses, right? Um, so, uh, for instance, um, in the much later on in the 13th century, um, there's a, a garrison of Varangians. Um, who uh, uh, defend a city against uh, Bulgarian attackers? So I think there's, you know, there's there's some other examples of that. But I feel like in a, you know, in an age where sort of the, you know, if you think about they're fighting, they're fighting these uh, um, whoever the Aglabids in Sicily or or the, I'm gonna, I always say it is the Aglabids. I, I always say it's either the Aglabids or the Calabids, and it turns out to be the other one, but I think it's the Aglabids that are mainly fighting um, in Sicily um, or, you know, the Normans in Italy or, um, uh, or if they're in Syria or, you know, fighting the Seljuks in Armenia. Those are all opponents that kind of primarily have a sort of cavalry focused uh, armies. So I, I assume that, that that's going to put a heavy infantry unit into 
a defensive role because they're we, we do know for instance they're like they're often referred to as the axe bearing varangians or the axe bearing guards and so that that distinctive thing that they carry these big uh two-handed axes right the so-called danish axes um is kind of their signature weapon um uh and it is seen as um you know a bit of kind of um there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care plush care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe fda approved weight loss medications like wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I, I don't. I'm, I'm trying to think of an equivalent. It's it's sort of uh, it, it it makes them distinctive because if you look at at images of them, they're dressed in more or less typical kind of Byzantine military uh, garb. They don't look like Vikings particularly, other than that they're often portrayed with blonde hair. Um, but uh, but then they carry the axes and and so that becomes like the the symbol uh, of th- that's what represents a Varangian is that he has this great big tall axe. You know, it's a little bit like uh, like drawing somebody in a kilt, and you're like, "Oh, that person's meant to be Scottish." Um, you know, it's sort of their uh, their their signifier. Um, uh, but yeah, so they uh, they do they kind of get everywhere, and they turn up in um, uh, in in all kind of eras, right right up into the later um, well, the High Middle Ages. But uh, before we get to that, I've got two quick yeah. questions. I, yes. I want to sneak in. How many of them were there? Because you know, was the Praetorians five to eight thousand at their peak? Say, how many was the Varangians? Were they a, a big unit, or they were a, a smaller select? We don't. Were- I mean, I don't know that the numbers are precise, and uh, and it probably is different at different times as well. Um, so there's um, we know. So the we know, for example, at the very near the end of the tenth century, um, we know that Vladimir of Kiev sends six thousand troops to go help uh, Emperor Basil II. Um, there are other sources that say 4,000 Varangians. Um, there are uh, 3,000 Varangians serving in Armenia in the 1040s, and presumably that's not the entire core. Um, so I've seen a lot of estimates that say 4,000. It's often, um, there's a reference to Harald bringing 500 men with him when he comes to Constantinople, and it's been suggested that they're divided into like divisions of 500. Because you often see them turning up in places in like multiples of five hundred, but sometimes there are uh, there are smaller numbers. So um, there are cases of just like a few hundred Varangians being uh, sent somewhere as well. So I don't think we know exactly, but it's in that range. You know, there's there's let's say you know more than three thousand, but fewer than ten thousand of them. Um, you know, give or take. 
Okay, cool. Um, the, the other bit that you've mentioned a lot of different sources here, including some. Were you saying Anna earlier? Yeah, Anna Kimnana. Yeah. So, do you want to ex- tell us a little little bit about that, and maybe All some right. of the complexities you've you've got with digging into these sources? So, Anna Anna Kimnana um, is the daughter of the Emperor Alexius the First. Um, she writes a history of her father's reign, the Alexiad. Um, and yeah, I mean, she kind of, she kind of says the same things about the Varangians, you know, she, she, like, she's not, it's another of those sort of frustrating examples of Anna mentions the Varangians, but doesn't talk about them all that much. Um, but she, she goes into a little bit of detail. It's, she doesn't just sort of like mention them and assume, you know, what they are. She does talk about how they're. Um, you know, she calls them the axe-bearing barbarians. I think she's the one who says that they come from Thule. Um, you know, like the 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 legendary land in the far north. Um, I think that's Anna. Um, and so, yeah, she, she now when she's writing about those campaigns of like the 1080s, she's actually talking about things. I forget exactly when she's born, but she certainly wouldn't like remember them. Um, but she did have contact with. You know, I mean, but the, the emperor, for example, but also other senior figures in the imperial court. So she's a pretty good source. Um, the our main source for the invasion of Sicily is another uh, Byzantine historian, John Skylitzes, um, and he doesn't mention the. I mean, he talks about the the context of the um, of the invasion, but he doesn't mention the Varangians participating in it at all. Um, you know, he's talking mainly about the. Um, the, the commander of the of the forest, a guy called uh, Georgios Mayakis, and his uh, quarrels with the, the 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 expedition's naval commander Stephanos, who Mayakis hit um, after he um, allowed an enemy commander to escape, um, which was a bad idea because uh, Stephanos may not have been a great uh, sailor, but he had one very important qualification for the job, which is that he was the emperor's brother-in-law, um, and uh, that's not the kind of guy you slap. Um, and that's how Maniakis got relieved of command. But if you were to read the account, so there are a lot of Icelandic sagas that mention people serving in the Varangian Guard. Like um, uh, it's in Laxala saga. Um, there's an uh, there's a what's called a thauter, like a short story that's appended to. Um, Oh, dear. now I've lost it now in my mind, but to one of the other sagas, which is about um, this guy, Thorstein Dromund, and how he goes and joins the Varangian Guard. And then, of course, there's Harald Saga itself, which um, in the most common form um, forms part of the uh, the Heimskringla, the sort of history of the kings of Norway. But these are all much later texts. Um, you know, they are, they are recounting things that happened uh, in the sort of so-called Viking Age, but they are from a couple of hundred years uh, afterward, so we have to be a little cautious. I, you know, I think it's very clear, for instance, that um, that the accounts of where Harald is in the Mediterranean as part of the Ranging Guard in Harald Saga are out of order. Um, they don't line up with campaigns that uh, you know that 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 we know were taking place. So I think it's um, it's it's a case of a uh, you know of of Snorri Sturluson, the author of of uh, taking incidents that he knew had happened and trying to get them into the correct order, but then also kind of filling in blanks with these, you know, these, these kind of stock adventure moments. There are other versions of Harald's saga where like he fights a giant snake. 
Um, at one point, he's in jail and he gets he gets um, saved by a miracle. So, uh, you know, sober history is perhaps well. I said I said that's actually pretty much what you'd expect. Um, you know, I I was going to say that that's not sober history, but our our primary sources for the First Crusade involve miracles, like eyewitness accounts. Um, so that's that's pretty par for the course in this era. Um, so dealing with the sources is, I mean, it is a challenge because there's no point where someone says, okay, let's sit down and write a guide to the Varangians, you know, who they are and, and um, uh, like for, and, and it's clear that the Byzantines don't necessarily know a great deal about them. So the, the most detailed description of, of Harald's time in the Varangian guard that comes from, um, from uh, a Greek source is, um, a text attributed to this uh, Byzantine uh, officer, Kekamenos, who was part of the invasion of Sicily. And so he served alongside Harald. He's the guy who calls him Araltes. And he has this whole story about how his father was the king of Varangia, which is obviously not a place that exists. Um, and he understands that Harald's brother was previously king. Like he even, I forget what he calls him. It's like Eolabos or something like that, but it's clearly meant to be Olaf. Like he understands better than most but still there's a lot of you know harold's father was not the king of norway he was only olaf's half brother and not on the side that was royal um uh, although his father was a king because norwegian kingship is very complicated um but but most of them don't seem to be very curious about uh what the you know where the varangians come from or what they're like uh they 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 kind of describe them in these very like uh, not well stereotyped sort of ways, right? They're they're brave northern barbarians with their big axes, and they're you know they're um, you know they regard loyalty to the emperors as a sacred trust handed down from father to son, and you know it's very kind of like it, they're stereo they're positive stereotypes, but they're still stereotypes, right? So um, it's uh, it's an interesting sort of um, uh, you have to kind of like piece together. Uh, little bits of, um, you know, the, the, no one writes like a history of the Varangians. So you, you you have to look at like accounts of individual campaigns and uh, and, um, uh, and 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 do that, or or look at the archaeological evidence. So, for example, um, in Sweden, there are lots of rune stones that are erected in memory of people who died. Who served in the Ranging Guard and then came home and died at a later date, right? But that it's, it's that it's mentioned on their sort of memorial stone. Or um, there's runic graffiti in um, in Hagia Sophia. Uh, so in what was the you know the, the Imperial Church in Constantinople, there's a spot where almost certainly what's happened is you know one of the emperor's Varangian bodyguards. It's up in this gallery where the emperor would have uh, would have maybe been watching the services, and someone was just kind of chiseled his name into the it says Hafdan. Um, you know, so like uh, he's uh, he's, he's wild away the time uh graffitiing Hagia Sophia. Um and you can see it there today. Or there's a runic inscription on uh one of the, the Arsenal lions that were taken to Venice uh following the Fourth Crusade. It was a, a sculpture from Constantinople and it's got a runic inscription on it. So we and similarly you find um, bits of kind of Scandinavian style material culture in context associated with Byzantine military activity so i mean the evidence is pretty good that that they were there but in terms of the specific details uh 
we don't know. We we do get the impression. I mean, everyone seems to agree that this could be extremely profitable. Uh, that service in you know that that um, that the opportunities for plunder. But not to say nothing of the pay. So the pay is good. The opportunities for plunder are good. Um, and there seems to have been a form of ritualized pillaging, which was done when there was a succession. So when a new emperor came to power, he would let the Varangians loot the palace. Um, it's not clear what that's all about, but that it seems to be a kind of, uh, you know, a kind of, a kind of donation that the, that the emperor makes to the Varangians. Um, and through all of this, um, Harald, who may at one point have been jailed for um, uh, misappropriating official funds, um, it, he, uh, uh, the saga says that he was jailed because the Empress was in love with him, but you know, um, it would, wouldn't it? Um, Harald may have been, uh, you know, uh, he, he returned, you know, ha- having gone into exile basically following, um, the, uh, the defeat of his, of the death of his, uh, his half brother, King Olaf, you know, having gone into exile, um, you know, in a pretty, pretty poor situation, he returned to Norway, um, very wealthy and able to, you know, support the kind of forces necessary to broker a deal with his, uh, his nephew who had become, uh, had subsequently become, it's complicated, but when he returned, his nephew, um, Magnus was, uh, was running the country and the combination of Harald's military experience and wealth, uh, made him, a, a, a very persuasive claimant to the throne. So, there's a lot of uh, similarly, um, uh, Bolly Bolison, the guy who, who comes back in one of the sagas, um, is uh, it, it it's describes how beautifully dressed he is. Um, so there's this whole thing that's like you know, and 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 the, like women follow him everywhere, and everybody admires Bolly's you know amazing outfit and his beautiful sword and his shield with a picture of a, a knight on it, and um, so uh, so there's some. Uh, some suggestion that this was just, you know, look, if you are, particularly if you're someone like um, uh, Harald, who's been, uh, I mean, who was essentially on the run. Um, and he's been in Rus where his, his uh, cousin, um, Yaroslav the Wise, is, uh, um, is uh, in charge. But, um, you know, but th- this is a good place to go for him. It's a good opportunity to gain valuable experience. He's very young when he arrives. I mean, he's maybe... He's in his very early twenties. Um, maybe not even that. Uh, he's. Um, we actually for for the cover of the book, the only it's a, got a beautiful cover illustration. The only thing we had to change was that when we got it, uh, you know, when people think of Harald Hardrada, they think of him as the guy from um, the Battle of Stamford Bridge, right? They think of this, you know, tough, grim old Viking, and we're like, this guy's like twenty one. Um, you know, he, we need to, we need to young him up a little bit. Um, but, uh, but the, you know, the, the rewards were, were pretty great. The, the, and, and, and the, you know, the Roman empire seems to have been held in some kind of respect. Like there's a lot of, um, you know, when Constantinople or when the Byzantine empire is mentioned in Scandinavian sources, there's, you know, there's this kind of, um, sense that it's, you know, that, that it has this prestige, um, even kind of over and above its material wealth, because, you know, because it's the capital of the empire, it's, um, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty great that you have gone there 
Um, and of course, while you're there, uh, you can also like um, Harald uh, went to the Holy Land and he uh, swam in the Jordan and, you know, did all the other kind of like pilgrimy things that you're uh, supposed to do, which is also, um, you know, reinforcing his claim to the throne, right? Because a lot of his prestige um, rests on his um, his association with his saintly half-brother. So, uh, so going to uh, the Mediterranean and getting to, you know, visit all these Christian holy sites is a great way to kind of boost your credibility among Christian supporters as well. So we, we've covered sort of the, the early phase of them. What happens as we kind of move into the Middle Ages? I have a vague memory rattling around the back of my head that they're at the uh, Fourth Crusade's siege of Constantinople. They are, yeah. And I, I've probably got this completely wrong in my head, but I've got a feeling that they sort of look at the situation and go, mm, yeah, no thanks. Uh, yeah, we, so we don't really fancy this. There are recorded, like there are ranges among the defenders of Constantinople, but at the same time, um, and and they actually stick around even after the, they, they um, uh, you know, when the Fourth Crusade takes Constantinople, you get the formation of these um, kind of uh, Byzantine splinter states. Um, so, uh, um, in, uh, Epirus and Nicaea, there are, we know at least in, in those, it, it, we know at least there, there are Varangians in the militaries of both kind of post Byzantine states. So there, um, or at least there are, there are units called Varangians. There's, you know, it gets a little more, um, it gets a little more complicated, um, in the later part of the period. Yeah, so we know that in the, like, even into the, um, uh, we know that in the 13th century, there are Varangians um, in the, uh, in the Byzantine military, but they seem to no longer, like they, they turn up less frequently in the records. I think maybe the, um, the, the prestige of the unit is kind of um, decreasing. And I don't think we have a lot of information about, sort of people from um from Scandinavia going i think those those sources aren't you know that that doesn't seem to be the case so i don't know who's making up the guard um at this point but we know that um uh there's um uh there's there's definitely lists of uh varangian officers from this period i think the last um even in the early uh 1400s um so uh in 1402 uh, Emperor John the Seventh writes to uh, King Henry the Fourth of England, um, and he talks about the defense of Constantinople against the Turks, and says that there are English troops helping to defend the city, and he's presumably referring to the Anglo-Varangoi, the English Varangians, um, and uh, or 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 people who might be called um, some of them might be English mercenaries, but there's also what they call uh, Varangopuloi, so sons of the Varangians. So they might be people who were, you know, who were, were Byzantines, but who could trace their ancestry back to Varangians who had a kind of um, uh, a special status. So we don't, I mean, so as late as the, um, as the early 1400s, there are still Varangians in the Byzantine military. Um, and indeed, there's a reference in 1404 um, to them being, there being the, the axe bearing soldiers so that the, the, they still, whether they're actually still fighting with them, who knows, but that the, that this, that the axe is still kind of the symbol of 
the Varangian Guard as a unit. Um, which again, all kind of seems, I don't know, I, th- I think when most of us envision, you know, the, the end of the Byzantine Empire in the 1400s, we don't think about any of the defenders of the city being English or being able to, to trace their ancestry back to um, English immigrants. But, you know, one of the things that really kind of struck me in this whole project is it, it's, um, I don't know, I think it, it reveals this Mediterranean world, particularly the stuff in the 1040s. It's a Mediterranean world that's going to kind of disappear in the wake of the Crusades. Like the, the political situation will be realigned um, after that. And it's this uh, Byzantine Empire that's extremely, um, I don't know, I don't, I don't want to say, it's very, I guess, cosmopolitan. Um, it has, um, uh, it has, um, uh, it has forces in its military that come from, you know, really all over the place. You might, you have, you have people like there, uh, the, the two other Varangians who are named in Harald Saga, um, Ulf Ospaksen and Haldor Snarson, are both from Iceland. You know, so in this Byzantine invasion of Sicily, you've got people who are from Iceland, you've got people who are from like Russia and Ukraine, you've got people who are from uh, Italy, people who are, you know, Italian Normans, some of them might be even from Normandy. Um, you've got Armenians uh, and, you know, fighting against people from Sicily itself, from North Africa. Um, so it's a, uh, it's, it's, you know, we tend to think of that as an era when people don't, you know, people don't travel very much. People don't have much contact with kind of, uh, you know, the outside world. And then here we have, um, you know, not only people making the journey from Scandinavia to Constantinople, but so many of them that there is a regiment of thousands of them in the, the Byzantine military, which kind of goes against, you know, even like, and I study this period, but that's still my instinctual stereotype. You know, I still have that instinct that says, oh, yeah, how how wild and diverse this is. But actually, you know, maybe not. Yes, that's, <clears throat> excuse me. <coughs> excuse me. Um, we'll edit that bit out. Um, so I guess we, we, we need to look at it more as the, the world being more cosmopolitan than perhaps we would think it would think it would be in, in those ages with people guessing around a lot more than than we when we than we think. I mean, that seems to be kind of, um, I, I don't know. I just, I feel like we're always surprised when this is just, so there's got to come a point where we're, we're always surprised by these things happening. Then we think, um, because of course the, um, I mean, that's not to say that most people were, you know, jetting around the world. And, uh, and this was seen as like something that was quite daring and adventurous of him to do, but certainly not impossible you know, not, not strange, just like, wow, he went that far. Um, but, uh, but, uh, but within a context where like the idea doesn't have to be explained, it's understood that these, you know, medieval Icelandic readers and hearers of this tale will think, oh yeah, you know, go, yeah, going to Constantinople to join the Ranging Guard. It's a bit like saying somebody joined the French Foreign Legion, right? Like it's, uh, it's not something most people do, but it's certainly something that happens all the time. This has been properly fascinating, James. Thank you so much for this. You did tease us earlier about what you're working on at the moment. So what what is is it still is it more Varangians or what have, what have you got so in your plate at the, the second? Uh, Viking in the Sun is a this is kind of how I I 
uh, got into the ranging guard. Um, it, I mean, um, I wouldn't even say we're working. I mean, it's done. Um, it's uh, it's out now. Uh, th- I'm sorry, that's the better way to say it. It's out now. Um, we uh, so history and games lab. Um, we we I wasn't that involved in the previous project, but um, in twenty I want to say twenty put out. Um, a book about uh, the Crusades. Um, it's called the Crusader States, and it's uh, it's not even really about the Crusades. It's about the the world of the Crusades, I guess. Um, and that's a, a supplement for a uh, a war game, a, a miniatures war game called Lion Rampant. So it's called Lion Rampant: The Crusader States, um, and that was very well received. So we did a second one, which is uh, set a little bit earlier than that, um, called uh, Lion Rampant: A Viking in the Sun, and it's got uh, chapters on. Sicily and on the conflict in um, Italy in the 1040s um, and on uh, what's going on in the um, in, in Palestine around this time where there's a brief period of um, very good relations between the Byzantines and the Fatimids. Um, and so it's just the goal of the History and Games Lab to turn um, historical research into uh, into to games. Um, and uh, this is, uh, you know, I wrote the the section on the ranging garden. I wrote the section on the invasion of Sicily, and you know I knew about them. I like I was familiar with the with the saga sources much more so than the the Byzantine ones. Um, and as I, you know, as I dug into this, I, this is sort of where I began to think like, huh, you know, the the, the sort of popular image of the ranging guard as you know, oh, the the emperor's got a bodyguard of colorful foreigners um, is like it's true, but it also um you know it's just a it's just a fraction of the the sort of uh, interesting connections that you start to dig up when you start to look into it so yeah it's called um uh lion rampant a viking in the sun uh and uh you can uh if you if you just go on uh, facebook or whatever and look for history and games lab you'll find the history and games lab uh, page and you should like that and you can you can find out how to get it from there James, this has been brilliant. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, are you on social media? Can people follow you and, and so I on? Am, so stay in um, although, and, and I am, mean, although I don't know how much they want to see pictures of my dog, but, um, you know, they can find me on, uh, I mean, everybody likes to see pictures of a dog. Um, they can find me on uh, Twitter. I'm uh, at Gonzo History on Twitter. Um, and uh, on, uh, on Facebook, they can see mostly posts from my colleagues, but occasionally um, things from me uh, on the History and Games Lab. Uh, Facebook page. Perfect. And there's nothing wrong with a Twitter career based around pictures of dogs. Bernie and I know many a person who's <laughs> done very well for themselves out of that. So James, absolutely brilliant to talk to you. Thank you for shedding light for us on the Grand June Guard. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.